On Valentine's Day, 1884, 25-year-old Theodore Roosevelt held his young wife Alice in his arms as she slowly died of kidney failure only two days after giving birth to their first child. Hours earlier in the same house, he had watched his mother die of typhoid fever, and in his tremendous grief, Roosevelt sought the solitude of the North Dakota Badlands, where months earlier he'd purchased a working cattle ranch. In the 1880s, Theodore Roosevelt would operate two large open-range cattle ranches that he called the Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn, on the banks of the Little Missouri River. Today's guest, author Rolf Sletten, writes in his book, Roosevelt's Ranches, that it was here that T.R. healed his wounded soul, built himself up physically, learned to live with tough men who cared not at all for his status on the East Coast, and gathered the experiences that became the basis for three of his best books. Perhaps most importantly, he saw firsthand that if our forests and grasslands were not preserved and protected, they would soon be destroyed. The ranches changed Theodore Roosevelt, shaped his policies, and ultimately influenced the course of U.S. history, particularly regarding the conservation and the preservation of our natural resources. Even after becoming President of the United States, T.R. felt that the best days of his incredibly eventful life were the days he spent on the Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn. Hello, and welcome to the Talk About Teddy podcast, weekly conversations exploring the world of Theodore Roosevelt. I'm your host, Kurt Skinner, and I'm joined as ever by my good friend and co-host, Larry Marple. Hey, Larry, could you tell our listeners about today's guest? Hello, Kurt. Yes, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy the conversation today with Rolf Sletten. Rolf is a native of North Dakota who graduated from the University of North Dakota Law School and moved to Bismarck, where he worked as a lawyer and later served as executive director of the North Dakota State Board of Medical Examiners. Rolf became captivated by the Badlands. His first book was published in 2013. Medora, Boom, Bust, and Resurrection, documenting the history of the town of Medora, North Dakota. Rolf was the winner of the Bully Spirit Award in 2018 from the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation and is on the board of directors of the TRMF. His second book, and the focus of today's podcast, was originally published in 2015, Roosevelt's Ranches, the Maltese Cross, and the Elkhorn. Welcome, Rolf, to the Talk About Teddy podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Rolf, you've written this beautifully illustrated book on Roosevelt's ranches in the North Dakota Badlands. It's obvious to the reader that this book is written from the perspective of one who is intimately familiar with the history and landscape of the region. So tell us, Rolf, how did you come to be interested in Theodore Roosevelt and his time in the West? Well, many years ago, actually in the early 1980s, I was married to Harold Schaefer's daughter. And Harold, of course, was the man that was most responsible for restoring and reviving, for rebuilding Medora. And so I started to spend a lot of time in Medora. Harold was a big TR fan, but maybe more important than that, as I spent more and more time there, I became a little bit frustrated because it seemed to me that people would come into town, they'd stay for a weekend or for a few days, they would leave. Most of them probably knew that Theodore Roosevelt did some ranching in the area at one time. 
Uh, most of them probably wouldn't be able to tell you where those ranches were or just when he was there. And they knew something a little bit about the Marquis de Maurice, who was the Frenchman who, who started the town. But there's so much more to the history, and I felt that most people weren't absorbing very much of that. And so my original idea was that I would write what I envisioned as kind of a large pamphlet talking about some of the events, some of the people, some of the places that make Medora's history so fascinating. And then as I started to research, I found more and more and more material, and that pamphlet actually turned out to be my, my first book. Well, it's a very good book, too, yes. Well, we're always interested in the sources that, that folks use, and and you've documented a goodly number of those sources, but, I mean, you're... Your book is this really beautifully illustrated photographic record of Roosevelt's ranches and his time in the Badlands, but can you speak to some of the sources that you you found most helpful? Well, the very best sources are T.R.'s own writings, his books, and his letters. He, of course, besides his autobiography, he wrote three books that deal either entirely or in very large part with his experiences in the Badlands. Uh, and then, of course, he was a prolific letter writer. And so his letters document quite a lot of what he did and what he was thinking about when he was in the Badlands. Beyond that, the best sources would be newspaper articles. I spent a lot of time reading the Badlands Cowboy newspaper, which, of course, was the local newspaper in Medora between 1884 and in 1886, published by the man named A.T. Packard, who was a very important character in early days of Medora. Then there are letters written by some of Roosevelt's contemporaries. Most of those people didn't write a lot of letters, or if they did, those are not extant. But Bill Sewell, in particular, kept up a regular correspondence with his family in, the, in Maine. Bill and Wilmot Dow, of course, were the managers of the Elkhorn Ranch mm -hmm. uh, for almost the entirety of its, well, for much of its existence. And of course, it's very helpful to read the works written about Roosevelt's experiences in the Badlands, written by other writers. And among the best, I would say, were Edmund Morris, uh, Roger D. Silvestro, mm -hmm. and Carlton Putnam, who wrote The Formative Years in, I think, 1956. Okay. Yeah. We'll put some of those up on on our website for uh, for some folks to get some more background reading if they're not familiar with that. Mm -hmm. For those who don't have the pleasure of having this book in front of them, it is lavishly illustrated yeah. with amazing sketchings and and uh, historic photographs. Can you talk about some of those? Well, very interestingly, Theodore Roosevelt had a camera in the Badlands. And so he took a number of photos, quite a few. No one knows how many, at least I don't think anyone knows how many, because some of those photos haven't been found. Uh, but we know that he took his camera along on his uh, pursuit of the boat thieves. We know that he had his camera at the uh, Maltese Cross Ranch fairly early on. And uh, so there are many pictures taken by Roosevelt himself in the Badlands in the 1880s in this book. Those are probably my favorites. So there was one that I found, I originally saw it on the page of the Mandan Historical Society. And it shows 
uh, Joe Ferris, Sylvain Ferris, Bill Merrifield, and a fourth character who I'm convinced is Lincoln Lang, taken in the 1880s in a studio in Mandan, Mandan, North Dakota. And that's a wonderful photo, one of my favorites. I hadn't seen it before I started doing this research, so it was a, a wonder, fun thing to find. You see Joe Ferris in the store in Medora, at the Joe Ferris General Store, and he's older. It's one of the like late 1800s, early 1900s. But when you see him in that photograph that you found, that's the Joe Ferris that Theodore Roosevelt knew. Yes, that's exactly right. All of those men are very young men in the photo, and they were Roosevelt's contemporaries. We see you using a lot of Remington sketches, and Roosevelt had this this relationship early on with Frederick Remington and, and actually commissioned Remington to create a lot of these sketches, some of them maybe from some of his own photographs in some of his works like Ranch Life and Hunting Trail. It's it's really neat how you, how you integrate those into this story, too. Well, thank you. Yes, Roosevelt had Remington draw 90-some photos for Ranch Life, and a lot of those are based, or some of those are based on photographs that Roosevelt took. Also, in hunting trips, there's a photo of the Chimney Butte, and if you compare the sketch that's in that book, it's not a photo, it's a sketch and an etching. If you compare the sketch to the actual skyline, it's exact. It's exact. <laughs> so some artist didn't do this just by conjuring it up out of his mind or based on a description that Roosevelt gave him. It had to be based on a photo that Roosevelt had taken of that place. So it makes you wonder how many other Roosevelt photos, photographs are out there that have never been found, and where are they? Yeah. I've often wondered, I know with the Elkhorn, <clears throat> since he had the root cellar and would develop the plates there, I know there's right. been things found there, but I don't know if anyone has ever excavated that deep to look at the root cellar. Well, they did. The National Park Service did that in about 1959 or okay. so, 19, 1960, and they found evidence there that clearly established that there was a photo lab there because there was enough remaining for them to see where Roosevelt, or I'm sure it was probably Wilmot Dowell and Bill Sewell that did the actual work, but where they had light-proofed that space, that wow. small space, where Roosevelt developed his photos. I think we can wow. add that now, Larry, to Roosevelt's growing list of accomplishments. Yeah. <laughs> Roosevelt as photographer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, he was very good. I mean, some of those yeah. are the only pictures known to exist of, you know, the cowboy life in the Badlands in the 1880s. That's exactly right. And the photos are very good. The focus is so great, you wonder what happened to, to some of the others. Why don't we have them? They, they couldn't have been. I'm sure they weren't all bad photos that no. were thrown away. Those photos are very good. So when you were researching, did you find something that surprised you? I was just amazed at how far these people would ride their horses. Long, long, long ways. TR, for example, sometimes headed out to ride from the Maltese Cross to the Elkhorn, yeah. that's 30 miles, but it's 30 miles through the Badlands, which is, means that you're on a very, very circuitous path, particularly if the river is high. But at the best of times, it's far, far from a straight line. And I remember on one occasion in particular, we headed out late in the day. It was in the middle of the winter. It was bitterly cold. 
He knew it was going to get dark a long time before he got to the Elkhorn. There's no road leading to the Elkhorn. He's just finding his way through the Badlands. All of that stuff amazed me. I've done a lot of horseback riding, or at least I did when I was younger, and, wow, these people were tough. Mm -hmm. They were really tough. Now, we've mentioned him being out in the Badlands. What brought Theodore Roosevelt to the Badlands of Dakota Territory, as it was called at the time? Well, he came for one very specific purpose, and that was to shoot a buffalo. And T.R. said that he wanted to shoot a buffalo while there was still a buffalo to shoot. What had happened was that he was a speaker at a meeting of the New York Fair Trade Society and Fair Trade Club, and while he was there, he met a man named Henry Gorringe, who has a long and kind of interesting history, but to cut to the chase, Gorringe and a couple of his partners had purchased the old army cantonment, in other words, the small fort that was built up in 18, between 1879 and 1883, just across the river from where Medora is now. So we'll say a half mile west of Medora. And the army had abandoned it by 1883. Gorringe and his partners had purchased it, and their intention was to turn it into a hunting camp or an outfitting camp for hunters and for tourists. And so Henry Gorringe was telling Roosevelt that about all the hunting possibilities there and all the buffalo in the area. And at the time they were having this conversation in the spring of 1883, that was true. There were still a lot of buffalo in the area. So in any event, they made plans to go together to Dakota to make the buffalo hunt in the fall. Then shortly before they were to leave, Gorringe bailed out on TR. And so TR was left with the choice of either going it alone or abandoning the whole idea. He decided to press on without Gorringe, and that's what brought him to Dakota and to the area we now know as Medora. (laughs) You mentioned in your book, I was looking for it here while you were talking, but literally that summer there had been two very large commissioned hunts that decimated a goodly amount of what was left of the bison in that region, maybe upwards of 15,000 and so what What did Roosevelt find when he gets out there and is tramping around with his guide, Joe Ferris, looking for that first bison? Yeah, it's just exactly as you say. When he and Gorringe had the discussion in the spring of 1883, it was true that there were still a lot of buffalo around. But by the time Roosevelt got there in September, they had virtually been wiped out. Uh, it was the end of the, the Great Northern Herd, as it's called, uh, occurred during that summer. Uh, in two massive hunts. And so, when Roosevelt got there, he engaged Joe Ferris to be his guide for the hunting trip, and uh, they set out down to a ranch run by a guy named Gregor Lang. It's almost 40 miles down south of Medora. But at that time, there was nothing between the railroad track and the Black Hills except Medora. So, even though they were 40 miles away, they were still considered to be Medora people. So, in any event, Gregor Lang did act as host for Roosevelt and for Joe Ferris, but they hunted for almost two weeks before Roosevelt finally shot a bull buffalo. And the hunt proved to be extremely difficult. Terrible weather, huge amounts of rain, and very little, very, very few buffalo were to be found. They did see a few, but after very, very hard hunting that I think would have discouraged almost anybody else. Yeah, it did discourage Joe Ferris. He was ready to go back home. That's correct. Yep. 
And then he looks over at TR, who's laying there in the mud, and TR's reaction of, by Godfrey, but this is fun. <laughs> and then, so then when he does finally get his bison after nearly two weeks of being out and about tramping through mud and the clay and the gumbo and f- getting thrown f- from horses and, and he finally gets that bison and and uh, he hands his guy, Joe Ferris, what, a $100 bill. <laughs> it was a big gift for sure. So what role did that trip have in his future in in ranching? Did he make any decisions while he was there that trip? Oh, yes. That, of course, was huge and probably quite impulsive in that he came there to shoot a buffalo. And his wife, Alice, is waiting back in New York for him. And then he wrote her a letter when he first got there. And he described his experiences of arriving in the Badlands, and it was basically a litany of complaints about the hotel and the people and the grass. He said even the milk tasted of alkali, and the water was awful, and, and nothing was right. Then he set off on the hunt with Joe Ferris, and within about 10 days, he was so captivated by the Badlands that he decided to get into the ranching business and purchased the Maltese Cross Ranch. Not the land, of course, but he purchased the cattle and went into the ranching business. And then wrote Alice another letter and told her that she was now a rancher's wife, which had to come as a bit of a surprise. Well, from that letter from your book in page, uh, let me see, what page 35. Sure. I got just took a couple of excerpts here. So this is Roosevelt writing to, like you said, to his wife Alice. The more convinced... I became that there was a chance to make a great deal of money very safely in the cattle business. Accordingly, I've decided to go into it very cautiously at first, and if I come out well the first year, much more heavily as time comes on. It will go a long way towards solving the problem that's puzzled us both a good deal at times, how I am to make more money as our needs increase and yet try to keep in a position from which I may be called at some future time to go into public life. So, a nice safe venture of cattle ranching. That's right. But my favorite line in that letter is when he tells her that, of course, it is all subject to your happiness. Or maybe <laughs> yeah. I don't have that quote exactly right, but uh, uh, this is after he wrote the check. So. <laughs> yeah. So he writes the check on the spot for how much money are we talking here? $14,000, I believe. A third of a million dollars in today's dollars. Um and that's more than he had as an entire yearly allotment from his father's mm-hmm. inheritance. So, yeah. And all this time, he's sending yeah. these letters back. Alice is pregnant. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Alice ever pictured herself as a rancher's wife. but uh, <laughs> imagine, Boston, yeah. imagine her joy. Yeah, you're, you're now the wife of a western cattle rancher. <laughs> oh. We've talked about his ranches. What was the... Maltese Cross like when Roosevelt first arrived and then when he came back? So Roosevelt spent those, we'll say two weeks, a little bit less than that, there in September of 1883 when he decided to buy the ranch. At that time, the two ranch managers who had started the ranch, Bill Merrifield and Sylvain Ferris, were living in a shack that was built stockade style out of posts. 
so the posts were set up vertically in the ground. Uh, it had a dirt floor. It was extremely rough. And Roosevelt told them he wanted to have a better house, and so after he, after he purchased the ranch, and told them to build one, which they did. So when he came back in 1884, he found the new house there. Uh, this cabin has a very, very interesting history that could be discussed for a long time, but... Uh, it was built out of railroad ties that had been cut by a man named Bly. Actually, he had a huge crew of men working down in the northwest corner of South Dakota and was called the Short Pine Hills. His idea was to float the, the ties. He had a contract with the railroad, and they produced something like 100,000 ties and timbers, and these things were hewed on four sides. It was a massive undertaking. They threw them in the river, and floated them down to approximately where Medora is right now, and there they built a boom across the river to capture the logs. Well, uh, the river rises and falls and the twists and turns, and huge numbers of these ties ended up on the riverbank. And that's what uh, Bill Fair Merrifield and Joe and Sylvain Ferris used to build the new cabin for TR. They didn't dare tell him for many, many years where the what the source <laughs> of the ties was because <laughs> they weren't really theirs for the taking. <laughs> no, you'd quoted. Uh, I, I think it was Sylvain Ferris that if if he would have known, he would have made us disassemble yeah. the cabin. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and it's fun when yeah. when you hear about something coming from South Dakota, headed north along a river. We always think of rivers flowing yeah. south, but the Little Missouri oh, yeah. doesn't. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of an interesting end of that story was that the ties and timbers that did make it to Medora broke through the boom and presumably headed on their way to the confluence with the big Missouri and then on their way to New Orleans. But So it was a total bust for Mr. Bly, but Roosevelt had one of the best cabins in the Badlands because of it. And that's because most ranch cabins in the Badlands are made of cottonwood logs. And cottonwood, of course, is very soft material, and those cabins didn't last very long. But T.R.'s cabin was made out of pine logs. His wasn't the only one, but those were rather rare. And, of course, that cabin is still standing today in Medora at the National Park headquarters. Yes. That, that cabin itself has a really interesting history after Roosevelt's time, right? Yes, it does. The cabins had a hard life. <laughs> yeah, Sylvain Ferris ended up with it, then he sold it to a guy named Jack Snyder. Jack Snyder only kept it for a couple of years, but during that time, he took down the high-pitched roof, put on a low-pitched roof, and covered it with sod so it would be easier to heat, and then he built a lean-to on the backside for a new kitchen. And that is the way the cabin is depicted in almost every photograph that you see of it, which is very unfortunate because that's not the way that Roosevelt knew it. So the cabin went, the state of North Dakota bought it from Jack Snyder. They took it in 1904 to the World's Fair in St. Louis, still with the low-pitched roof. Then 1905, it went to Portland, Oregon for the Lewis and Clark Centennial, still had the low-pitched roof, well, actually... Then it went from there to Bismarck, then to Fargo, where it was erected briefly on the state fairgrounds, and, then back to Bismarck. And each time, it's being disassembled log by log, right? Yeah. Right. Disassembled, then reassembled. Sometimes people were thoughtful enough to number the logs so they could be <laughs> reassembled in the proper order. Sometimes they weren't. Some of the logs were destroyed and had to be replaced. 
It stood on the state capitol grounds for many, many, many years until 1959 in two different locations. During that time, it was allowed basically to go, go to rack and ruin almost and was finally saved through a project by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, so they need to get a lot of credit. Then in 1959, when it was moved, turned over to the National Park Service and moved to Medora, they disassembled it again restored it, and finally restored it back to the look with the high-pitched roof that Roosevelt knew. Where you can see it to this day, yeah. right you uh, right behind the visitor center to Theodore Roosevelt National Park in Medora. Eh? But I yeah. worry about the cabin because although it was made out of pine logs, and so it lasts much, much longer than most of the ranch cabins out here, it is a wooden structure standing out in the elements, and I hope that someday it, some kind of roof can be put over it to shelter it and, and preserve it for a much longer time. T.R. left the Badlands after his bison hunt, and then when does he come back? T.R. came back the following summer, really, after the Republican convention in Chicago. But in the meantime, he'd had some devastating events in his life. His wife, Alice, and his mother both passed away on Valentine's Day of 1884. T.R. was devastated by those events. And so he returned to the Badlands and immersed himself in the business of being a rancher and a hunter. Uh, And he had decided already by then, in fact, within a couple of weeks of the deaths, he had started writing to his old hunting guides in Maine, Wilmot Dow and Bill Sewell, and he told them that he wanted to start a second ranch out in the Badlands, and he wanted them to come out to manage that ranch for them. So that ranch became the Elkhorn Ranch. Roosevelt did follow through on that plan. Unfortunately, his diary from that time doesn't tell us very much. It only it doesn't tell us what he was thinking or what his plans were. It only tells us what he shot yeah. each day. But that, that's quite clearly what he was doing is that he was up scouting the location for the Elkhorn Ranch. So after he found the location, he went back to New York, and there he met with Bill Sewell and Wilmot Dow, and he brought them out to Dakota to start working on the ranch. So the two ranches, by the way, ended up having very different personalities. The Maltese Cross Ranch was always the heart and soul of TR's cattle ranching operations in Dakota. And if he was ever going to make any money raising cattle there, it had to at least start, have started there. That ranch was run by real cowboys. They understood the cattle business. It was a much bigger cattle operation than the Elkhorn. On the other hand... T.R.'s favorite place in the Badlands was clearly the Elkhorn Ranch. He called it his home ranch. And this is a place where he went to to grieve and to be alone. The Elkhorn is in a very, very remote spot. Yeah, even today, mm-hmm. it's about an hour on bad roads to get out to the site. And it's a beautiful site, and you can see why T.R. fell in love with it. But it, it is very remote, and at that time, it was a very long horseback ride uh, to get there. But this is where he went to grieve. He did some writing there. Not necessarily his best writing so much there, but it's where he gathered the experiences or had the experiences that later led to some of his very best writing, at least in my opinion. Uh, And then, of course, eventually, after the the ranch buildings had been built by 
Sewell and Dow, they brought their wives out there. And at that point, I think life at the Elkhorn Ranch was must have been about as idyllic as it could ever be on a ranch in the Dakota Badlands. I mean, these women sewed curtains and they cooked, <laughs> by Roosevelt's description, wonderful meals and basically turned a house into a home. And though they all lived there, the Sewells, the Dows, and T.R., in the same house, it was a pretty good-sized house for that time and place. And uh, as I said, I think it had to be about as good as life could be there. On the other hand, they said getting fed at the Maltese Cross was a happy-go-lucky affair. They said (laughs) you were happy if you got something to eat, and you were lucky, too. (laughs) So I hadn't really thought about the timing of how T.R. was was plotting his move back to the Dakotas ranching a few weeks after the death of his wife Alice and I think I think I hadn't really thought through that until I first read your book um, that that he's writing to to Wilmot Dow and uh, you know I, I never believed it did any good to flinch or yield from any blow nor does it lighten the blow to cease from working and uh, you write in, in your book here in many respects, the two backwoodsmen, Sewell and Dow, were very strange choices for ranch foremen, most notably because they knew absolutely nothing about open-range cattle business. In fact, it appears Bill Sewell had never ridden a horse before he came to Dakota. He said later that his only experience in the equine line had been riding logs. On the other hand, they were resourceful, hardworking, loyal, and completely honest. Furthermore, they were mighty men with the axe who could fell trees with the best of them and could turn the logs into a house. I like that. Yeah, thank you. And of course, in some ways, they were perfect choices for Mm -hmm. all of the reasons that you just identified there. And they did a a wonderful job of putting up the buildings, uh, which was really what Roosevelt was after there. He wanted... He had an idea of what a Badlands ranch should be and to set out to create it there. And those two men with their wives were the, the perfect people to make it happen. So I think it was, in most part, a happy place. As it turns out, Bill Sewell in particular never really bonded with the Badlands and eventually decided that they all decided they wanted to go back to Maine. Although Bill Sewell says that, he also says that he thinks that for time there they were about as happy as... They could be anywhere, so Mm -hmm. they did create a good home. In your book, you talk about Bill Sewell says some of these cottonwoods around the site where the Elkhorn was to be constructed were some of the biggest cottonwoods he'd seen in in Dakota, and I know Roosevelt always liked to brag about he took part in the construction. Can I read a little (laughs) bit? You talk about him in his autobiography. He said, The Elkhorn Ranch house was built mainly by Sewell and Dow, who, like most men from the Maine woods, were mighty with the axe. I could chop fairly well for an amateur, but I could not do one-third the work that they could. One day, when we were cutting down the cottonwood trees to begin our building operations, I heard someone ask Dow what the total cut had been. And Dow, not realizing that I was within hearing, answered, Well, Bill cut down 53, and I cut down 49, and the boss, well, he beavered down 17. And those who have seen the stump of a tree which has been gnawed down by a beaver will understand the exact force of the comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a great quote. Uh, You know, some of those same cottonwood trees are still standing at the site today and are really part of what makes it so majestic, not only just because of their size, but also because 
you know that T.R. walked there past yeah. those trees and, and looked at those those very same trees. I also have to give him a little bit more credit than he was giving himself there for cutting down those trees. Cottonwood trees, if they're big enough to be used in building a cabin, are big logs. And cutting down 17 in one day, I'd be impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm astounded that somebody could cut down uh, 40 or 50 of them. Rereading that, the passage of the construction, I didn't remember that it was literally the middle of winter, the middle of a North Dakota winter, when Sewell and Dow are finishing the Elkhorn while Roosevelt is spending Christmas in early 1885 back in New York City amongst family and friends. Do you talk about that construction project that's ongoing in the Badlands while Roosevelt's back in New York? Well, these guys worked hard, and well, the whole time they're building the uh, the ranch site, and they built not only the cabin, but they also built a stable, a utility shed, and a blacksmith shop, all out of logs that they had cut by hand with an axe or saw. Uh, it was a massive job. While they're doing this, they're living in a tiny little dugout that they had found there on the site, and that had been carved into the side of the butte or the hill there, the riverbank, really, into the riverbank by some earlier hunter. Uh, so they had, this, they had to maintain that. They had to hunt for their own food, uh, try to stay warm, and still put up all of these buildings. It's, it's impressive. You mentioned that the cabin's gone. Yeah, when was the Elkhorn gone? When was it finally... Well, it didn't last very long. After the winter of 1886-87... TR basically left the Badlands. And of course, the losses were devastating. And so he stayed in the cattle business to try to recoup some of his losses. But when he came out after that, he was really a visitor. And so Sylvain Ferris and Bill Merrifield took over both of the ranches. And Bill Merrifield got married, and he and his wife lived at the Elkhorn Ranch for a time. But that only lasted for three or four years, too. And then it was basically abandoned. And within a short time after that, it had really disappeared. Other ranchers in the neighborhood started scavenging lumber, and it wasn't long before there was really no trace of of the Elkhorn at all. I know Edith visited out there with T.R. sisters and others Mm -hmm. in 1890 and had a glorious week, as she described it. So Mm -hmm. So what's the Elkhorn Ranch like today? The Elkhorn Ranch is part of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, at least a small part of it around the, the building site is. The buildings have all been removed. At one time, Congress directed the Park Service to rebuild all of the, the four buildings, but at least they appropriated, they directed them to do it, but that didn't ever happen. And so I always like to say that today we find the Elkhorn Ranch as Theodore Roosevelt found it, mm-hmm and not as he left it. It it is a beautiful spot. It's a peaceful spot. It's very remote. Uh, The scenery, I think, is majestic. The Little Missouri River flows by right past where the cabin stood. And it takes about an hour to drive out there from Medora and then about a 20-minute walk. But absolutely worth the trip for anyone who has any interest in Theodore Roosevelt and the forces and events that shaped him. 
as well as anybody else that just enjoys the Badlands. I know my first trip out there in 2014, Joe Wiegand had taken us out, and there's the foundation stones left. And I highly recommend to everyone to do what Joe did with us. He stood on the foundation stones and had us stand on them, and he read from TR's autobiography in cowboy land. It mm-hmm. was almost like a religious experience. I mean, it was mm-hmm. moving and, yeah. The Elkhorn Ranch site has been described as the most sacred spot in North Dakota. Yeah. And of course, whether it is or not depends on your own beliefs and thoughts. Uh, but it is certainly a very, very special place. And the cradle of conservation, as it's been called. We think of the the role of conservation in Roosevelt's career. What makes these two ranches the two most sacred places in North Dakota? Can you t- speak to that importance of, of Roosevelt's time in the West that he spent in the Badlands off and on for those few years? I think that The time that T.R. spent in the Badlands transformed him in several very important and very, very positive ways. For one thing, this was the place where T.R. built himself up physically. Uh, Much is written about his childhood and his asthma and how sickly he was. But after he had spent time in the Badlands as a rancher and a hunter, uh, he became an entirely different person physically. Some people barely recognized him back in New York. He... This is where he, he gained his, found his health, finally, for the first time in his life. Also, this is where he had the experiences that led to some of his best writing, at least in my opinion, that's true. So that was very important. And then the two other points are probably the most important of all. One is that this is where he learned to get along with regular folks. You know, in New York, he was from an aristocratic family. He had all the advantages. He went to Harvard. He was elected to the New York State Assembly when he was in his early 20s. He was the youngest member of the assembly. And so he really hadn't had a lot of experience working shoulder to shoulder with blue-collar people. And when he came out to Dakota, he found out that the Cowboys didn't care a lick whether he'd gone to Harvard or was in the legislature or what his name was. And I think that here he probably saw, maybe for the first time, but at least he was a very, very perceptive man, of course, but maybe with more clarity at least, that some of those things could actually be counted as as negatives. And it's interesting to compare him with the Marquis de Maurice who tried to bring some sort of a level of aristocratic living to the Badlands, and he was never accepted out here. But T.R. embraced the minimalistic lifestyle of the Badlands wholeheartedly, and although it took a lot of work, he was eventually accepted and even admired by the cowboys out here. So it was that was a real important lesson because when he got into politics, of course, eventually he relied on those blue-collar people to, mm-hmm. for their votes. And he, he had learned to understand them, and they loved him. And it was a very, very important life lesson. The other thing that he gained from his time in Dakota was I think he formed a lot of his beliefs and ideas about conservation out here. 
and of course, as our friend Joe Wiegand has pointed out, every muddy stream he ever crossed anywhere in the country, and he traveled very extensively, they all made some impression on his psyche. Yeah. So I'm not going to claim that Dakota can take all of the credit. But here, on his own ranches, he saw very clearly the effects of overgrazing and unrestricted hunting. Mm -hmm. And the results were devastating. He had come out to shoot a buffalo to discover that in a few short months the buffalo were gone. Winter of 1886-87, of course, effectively was the end of the open-range cattle business in North Dakota, at least on that grand scale. And it took a little while before it all changed, but it was at least the beginning of the end. And after that, people ranched in a very different way and took much better care of their cattle. But leading up to that, we know that for millennia, the northern plains here, these grasslands had sustained millions of buffalo for a very, very, very long time. And all of a sudden, the buffalo were gone. Cattle were driven onto the same grasslands. And within a period of about four or five years, they were effectively destroyed. And also, the deer were gone, mostly gone. The antelope were mostly gone. Roosevelt witnessed all of these things on his own ranches, and that made a huge impression on him. He went back to New York after that, formed the Boone and Crockett Club, and, of course, mm -hmm. developed some very, very strong ideas about conservation and preservation. So, Rolf, you had mentioned the really harsh winter of 1886-87 as being one of the toughest winters uh, on record in the Dakotas. Uh, so that's the effective end of the open-range cattle business. What's the extent of Roosevelt's losses uh, in that terrible winter of 86-87? I can tell you that in, in general terms, most ranchers lost about two-thirds of their cattle. Uh, Roosevelt, apparently there's thought that he may have fared just slightly better than that, but it was a devastating loss. It was the end of his active involvement in, in the ranching business. And after that, he just turned back east and focused on politics there. So financially, it was it was devastating. Tens of thousands of cattle died uh, through the Badlands and far beyond on the plains. I was going to ask, when did T.R. sell off the last interest in the cattle ranches? T.R. actually kept his interest in the cattle ranches, even though he wasn't actively involved in managing them anymore, until he was preparing to go off to the Spanish-American War. And then he directed his brother-in-law, Douglas Robinson, to handle the sale and told him to sell it all to Sylvain Ferris for, I think he said, whatever Sylvain can give. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he was simply done with it. One question we had, was it in the Badlands where he gets the idea for a cowboy regiment? You know, Roosevelt once said famously that if it hadn't been for his time in North Dakota, he never would have been president. And we North Dakotans are very fond of that quote. Now, I know that he said that in Fargo, and he said it in the context of a political speech. And I know that the next week he said something almost exactly like that about Montana when he was in Montana. Yeah. But in spite of all of that, I believe that his statement is almost certainly true, that he would not have been president but for his time out here. Uh, and of course, we'll never know for sure. But in 1886, a 
army captain named Crawford chased Geronimo into Mexico and got himself killed down there. And not by the Indians, but by the Mexicans. And there was a huge stir over that and a very serious talk about war with Mexico. And at that time, T.R. started floating the idea of raising what he was thinking of as a cowboy army to go and ride against Mexico. He went, he was communicating with William Endicott, the Secretary of War, about that. When he went to Mandan to Bismarck to testify against the boat thieves, he went to see the territorial governor with this idea of raising a cowboy army to rise against Mexico. There was an editorial in the Bismarck Tribune about Roosevelt's idea and how he was just the perfect man to be doing this. Okay, this was in 1886. Okay, well, nothing came of that, of course, but now we fast forward to 1898 and the war with Spain. You have a very, very hard time convincing me that Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, would have become involved with the Rough Riders if he hadn't had the experience out here of being a rancher and a cowboy. And he had originally formed this idea of that sort of a fighting force while he was out here. And so, of course, then the series of events was that he went to Cuba, became the hero of the Spanish-American War, that vaulted him into the governorship in, in New York, The politicians made him vice president, and then when McKinley was assassinated, T.R. became president. So that was the chain of events. It started with his rise to fame in Cuba, and I believe his involvement there started right here in the Badlands when he originally had this idea of raising a cowboy army. So yes, I think he was very, very likely correct when he said that he would not have been president but for his time in Dakota. I think you're in good company here also, Rolf. Yeah. The, <laughs> Larry and I, in episode two, we had a conversation with Mark Lee Gardner, who authored The Rough Riders. Yep. And, you know, we talked about Roosevelt having spent time here in Dakota. It gave him legitimacy yeah. uh, to help lead a cowboy regiment from the West. And, and mm-hmm. who's his partner? But Leonard Wood, who also had spent time out in the, the American Southwest. And right. so it's just... It might seem peculiar to some people that a couple of Harvard men are leading cowboy regiments into war. But, uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's This experience in, in the Dakotas is really what, what shapes his legitimacy to do that. So you had mentioned the boat thieves, Rolf. Could you expand on that? What happened with these boat thieves? Well, in the spring of 1886, Roosevelt came back to Dakota to spend time on his ranches as he was doing at that time. And uh, when he got there, he went straight to the Elkhorn Ranch. It turns out that Bill Sewell and Wilmot Dow had anticipated his arrival. They had shot four deer a few days earlier. They'd hung him in a tree where they thought they would be safe. Then uh, very shortly after Roosevelt's arrival, the three of them set out to retrieve the deer. They used Roosevelt's little boat that he had, a little rowboat that he purchased in St. Paul. And they crossed the river, which at that time was swollen with the spring flooding, and found the spot where the deer had been left, and they were all gone. They'd been chewed up by a mountain lion or cougar. So they made plans to go hunting. Well, they were back at the Elkhorn then that night, and there was a terrible storm that arose, and huge chunks of ice are coming down the river. The ice is grinding against the shore, and 
It's a horrible storm. But what they didn't know at the moment was that there were three, we we'll call them desperados, thieves, were riding the river in a leaky old scow. They stumbled onto the Elkhorn Ranch, found Roosevelt's store-bought, uh, almost new boat, climbed in, and set off down the river with their old scow and also Roosevelt's boat. Well, in the morning, when Roosevelt and Sewell and Dow got up, Bill Sewell discovered that Roosevelt's boat had been stolen. And so Roosevelt wanted to saddle up the horses and take off in hot pursuit, but the river was too swollen to make that uh, that practical, and so it was decided that Sewell and Dow would build a boat. So they sent a cowboy named Bill Rowe to Medora to buy uh, nails. They had lumber left over from their construction there at the Elkhorn, and over the next three, four days, they built a boat. Then, according to Roosevelt, when they were about ready to go, a terrible storm, a terrible blizzard, he says, set in, and so they delayed for three more days. I don't know about that, because it doesn't really square with the photos. <laughs> and Wilmot Dow, was, he wrote to his family that it hadn't snowed for weeks. But in any event, for whatever reason it was, they were delayed until they were probably a week behind the boat thieves when they finally set off. And if we're really being honest at that time, that was the excuse for going, was to pursue the thieves. But when you read what Roosevelt writes about it, they're basically three young guys having a good time, mm-hmm. floating down the river, exploring. I really think that's what it was. And that, you know, a, a week after the event, you have to think that the thieves had made it to the big Missouri, and then they were just simply gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, on the morning of the third day, they stumbled onto the boat thieves. They found the Roosevelt blue boat there tied up on the shore, walked into camp, arrested one of them, waited for the other two to show up, and then arrested them. Uh, so I don't think anybody could have been, I don't know if Roosevelt was more surprised or if the thieves were more surprised, but this is a very, very unlikely event that they could have found each other out there and or caught up with each other. But what had happened was that the ice had formed a dam across the river and nobody was going anywhere. And so that enabled them to capture the boat thieves, but it also proved to be a big problem because they had brought food for themselves and they now had six mouths to feed. And after a few days of no progress or almost no progress down the river because of the ice jam, they thought they were probably going to have to let these guys go. But they decided to stick it out for another day or so. And then to keep the story from getting too long, they did finally stumble onto a line camp. This would be a a little camp manned by one cowboy who was working for a much, much larger ranch called the Diamond Sea. He loaned the horse to Roosevelt. Roosevelt rode to the headquarters ranch where he got a wagon and a driver. And then at that point, Sewell and Dow back on the river, now with Roosevelt's stolen boat and the homemade boat. They floated all the way down to Mandan, and in the meantime, Theodore Roosevelt marched the outlaws. He put them in the wagon, hired the driver. He marched behind, walked through mud when it warmed up, and marched for two days to Dickinson, which was a very a real ordeal, really. He didn't dare to sleep for fear that they would run away. He didn't dare to ride in the wagon with him because he was afraid in those close quarters he would be overwhelmed. You have to wonder what he would do if they had run for it because he'd already decided he wasn't going to shoot him. But in any event, he did succeed. 
in marching them into Dickinson and turning them over to the sheriff there. You quote Roosevelt for his motivations for taking off after these thieves. You say to submit tamely and meekly to theft or to any other injury is to invite almost certain repetition of the offense in a place where self-reliant hardihood and the ability to hold one's own under all circumstances rank as the first of virtues. But you also you you also bring up. But he also took a camera with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what's his motivation there, you suppose? <laughs> well, I think that they didn't get started down the river until about a week after the boat had been stolen. And at that time, I think it was completely unrealistic to expect that they were going to uh, actually capture the boat thieves. So Roosevelt brought his camera along, and when he writes about it, it really sounds like they were mostly out to have a good time. But uh, there are three photos associated with the pursuit of the boat thieves, and two of them show T.R. holding a gun on what is supposed to be the boat thieves. The other one shows Sewell and Dow standing in the boat on the bank of the river. And for many years, there was some dispute as to whether or not these photos were taken in real time or whether or not they were staged after the fact. And I think most people came to the conclusion that they were staged after the fact, although there was debate about it. But the the secret, of course, was to find where the photos had been taken. And so one day, my partner Emily and I were out at the Alcorn Ranch site, and by that time I was very interested in trying to find the site where the photos had been taken. So I was carrying them with me as we traveled around the Badlands, and As we were leaving the site and looking off toward the west, all of a sudden, it was crystal clear. That was the spot. The photos, the two of the photos, the ones that show Roosevelt guarding the boat thieves, were taken right there at the Elkhorn Ranch site. So, of course, those were staged. And the people in the photo, other than Roosevelt, are actually Bill Sewell, Wilmot Dow, and then one other cowboy who's never been definitely identified. But I always thought that, well, if he staged two of the photos, he must have staged the third one. But our friend Doug Ellison thought not necessarily so. For one thing, he found an article where Bill Sewell was quoted as saying that Roosevelt had taken his camera with him on the trip. And so Doug then made it a his submission to try to find where the third photo had been taken, and he eventually succeeded in doing that. And that photo was taken on the river during the pursuit of the boat thieves. And then if you read the story, you'll hear where on that morning of the third day, they uh, had shot a couple of deer. And if you look at the photo of Sewell and Dow standing in the boat there, you see those deer in the boat. So we know exactly now that Doug found the spot, exactly where that that was taken. And and the mystery of all three photos has, has been cleared up. Two of them were staged at the Elkhorn. The other one was taken in real time on the river, which, of course, raises the big question. He certainly didn't take just one picture when he was on the river. So where are the others? It does seem that he... He almost certainly would have taken pictures of the bad guys. After all, they were the object of the exercise. And those photos must not have turned out. And that must be why he then staged them. I can't believe he didn't take them in the first place. 
like every other aspect of Roosevelt's life, if he lives an adventure, he writes about it and uh, serializes this account. And you you make mention of how the account of, of the, the boat thieves' pursuit and capture makes its way into a lot of publications. <laughs> Roosevelt yeah. gets a lot of good publicity out of this. He, he, it goes as a series of articles in Century Magazine. It, it goes into ranch life and hunting trails. He gets a lot of mileage out of this really excellent Western story. It was one of his favorite stories from the West, for sure. Yeah. And not only does he take his camera, he has Anna Karenina with him. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Never one to be without a book. No. <laughs> and, and so the ringleader of this gang, Redhead mm. Finnegan, eventually ends up going to uh, the territorial prison, gets a yep. couple of years in the territorial prison, right? I got a kick out of you included the excerpt yeah. there of that exchange between Finnegan and Roosevelt. Finnegan actually writes Roosevelt. <laughs> Roosevelt especially enjoyed Finnegan's, quote, delicious sense of equality, particularly in the postscript of Finnegan's letter when he wrote, P.S., should you stop over at Bismarck this fall on your Western tour, please make a call to the prison. I should be glad to see you. So this is <laughs> it's, uh, literally uh, no hard feelings, I guess. No, we're all yeah. in this together. It was a great adventure, right? Yeah. <laughs> that seems to be Finnegan's attitude. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. He got good publicity out of the deal also, I think. Uh, yeah, I think he did. Well, thank you, Rolf Sletton, for joining us this week on the Talk About Teddy podcast. This is good. Thank you, Rolf. Not many people really know about Roosevelt's ranch life. I mean, yeah. you hear about it, the cowboy president, things like that, but yeah. there's not a lot of detail, yeah. so... Thank you, Rolf. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed our terrific conversation today with Rolf Sletten. Uh, you can find his book, Roosevelt's Ranches, at shopmedora.com. And we'll have a link to that store on our website so you can get a copy for yourself. Uh, as we mentioned in the show, this is a meticulously researched book in just a beautifully illustrated photographic record of Roosevelt's ranches and his time in the North Dakota Badlands. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. You can find this podcast on our website, talkaboutteddy.com, where you can see show notes and transcripts, links to resources, and additional TR content. And do please tell us what you think. And if you've enjoyed our content, please consider subscribing and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. And tell your friends and family about us, because it really does make a tremendous difference, and it helps others find this show. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Talk About Teddy. And until then, as our friend T.R. would say, do what you can with what you have where you are. <laughs>